0: Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Welcome to Over the Ball, everybody, with Kevin Flynn. Uh, uh, I'm alongside every week. I'm joined with media executive Grail Hallett and OTV producer Sam Griswold, the man who puts the ah in Syria. Ah. I don't even know what that means, but there it is. Our guest this week is the one and only Jay Heaps. Jay has had a storied career in all aspects of this game and its development in this country. First is a standout college player as a U.S. men's national team player, a rookie of the year in MLS, a a coach with New England Revolution. Now he's president and GM of the Birmingham Legion FC. So uh, such a wealth of knowledge and insight that Jay has on this game and its development in this country, it'll be great to get caught up with uh, with with Jay Heaps. So, guys, uh, it's uh, summertime; the living is easy. Uh, well, not really. COVID is rearing its ugly head again. So, uh, get vaccinated out there if you haven't already. But um, I had a great weekend, kind of a kind of a booze and, and boat soaked couple of days out in the fan uh, the famed Hamptons. No Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard there, Sam, but uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't rate with those two, but it's, it was still a lot of fun. I had some great food, some great, uh, great times. Hanging out on the beaches. Uh, guys, I don't know if you have noticed this, but the bikinis are getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> oh, and it's God. like, where were they when I was young? My God, <laughs> these things are like, it's, the bikini was like the size of a, one of those COVID protective face masks. It's like, Jesus, uh, I'm not complaining, mind you, but I tell you when I was in college, the, college girls were not wearing that i think i i was in the uh unfortunately, were they wearing burlap yeah one piece uh <laughs> depressing now looking back but everybody's wearing these string bikini things it was hysterical they look uncomfortable but who cares uh like some sort of ancient Tibetan string torture um how i decided to, you know something like hey let's uh let's wear some dental floss and go in the water here we go um but anyway so but what i was laughing at uh because i was with my friends and my, so my buddies these guys are all like um I know they're like corporate titans, and they're all fit. And so behind us was this group of like Jersey guys smoking cigars, all fat. And um, so this, you know, well, one woman walks by and is large, right? So what? Um, but uh, you know, she walked by, and it looked like, you know, it looked like the strings on a on a pot roast. For God's sakes, so as she's walked by, but the guys behind me, these huge fat guys smoking cigarettes, were like, look at the size of her. Look at this. I felt like going, hey fellas. Look at the size of you. What are you kidding me? My god. So anyway, um uh, talking a lot of soccer with these people. One thing I love about uh about everything that's happening in the world of soccer, football is just that uh it's permeating real sports fans in this country who are classically not soccer fans. So that's uh, that's been good. So, um I'm over uh what what am I over? I'm over uh, you know, one piece one piece bathing suits. That's what I'm over. Sam, what are you over today and over the ball?
1: Yeah, I'm over there not being a sort of Europe-wide transfer deadline. I would like to see something maybe mid-July, August 1st at the latest. Uh, per, you know, I have a, I do have a personal investment in this in this case, but it looks like uh, Lukaku is about to leave uh, Inter to go to Chelsea, which for a lot of money, which is going to set this you know chain reaction off. That means that Fiorentina, who I like, is likely going to lose their top striker. Uh, best player 20 goal scorer from a season ago with maybe 10 days to go before the regular season they'll be forced to then buy from a club further down the chain on on, until Mm. someone gets screwed at the bottom now i know there's basic economics at play here this is how soccer works that's fine but i just think you should have to for europe-wide transfers i think you should have to do it sooner so everybody has a chance to kind of respond uh and set your team up for the season and i I just don't like how much power the big clubs have and when one transfer has the potential to sort of destabilize so many things so all right that's that's what i'm over
0: that's a serious point i go from we go from thong bikinis to some real serious transfer news grill what are you over
2: go from flinny's cave into reality (laughs) um so so i'm just over the press using terms like canada stuns usa when uh, Canada beat the, the U.S. Women's National Team one nil, uh, just because the, the outcome was entirely possible. So it shouldn't be stunning. And again, I think it shows kind of a lack of knowledge from the people reporting on this that they, they thought it was stunning because for us it wasn't. And it's also a disservice to Canada. It's acting like how, you know, how could Canada possibly have beaten them? Well, yeah, I mean, historically, they have not beaten them for like 20 years but the writing was on the wall so again it just annoyed me that uh they got lazy and threw that headline out there
0: and the writer caitlin murray who reports on the u.s women's national team and it's always just like puff pieces it's it's uh, absurd so it's sort of you know we had a history in this country of not criticizing the men's team because you we are just so happy we had a team but now they get criticized and i i don't think um that always happens so much the women i gotta say they won the bronze this morning so uh best on them for Excellent. that. I would say last night, you know, again, talking about uh, soccer with people who don't necessarily follow the game a lot, but they follow the Olympics. They follow world cup stuff, man, a lot of bad, uh, bad words on the women last night. they have I, I don't know what the story is with, I couldn't even defend it. I said, they didn't stand for the national anthem. They didn't, they, some kneeled, some turned to from it. I go, God, I, I haven't heard any of this stuff. So I didn't know, I, I didn't know how to defend, but I, you know, obviously we've talked about it before. We don't think a national anthem is appropriate in a domestic
2: league, but I guess in the Olympics, it's a little different. So, yeah, I mean, I think in any international play, it's just standard to play the anthem, but, uh, you know, there's that element out there that just, uh, you know, for patriotic reasons takes a stand against that. But that, that was the least of my concerns with them. First of all, I've been very critical of the, his national team, I was delighted that they got the bronze. I was really happy they, you know, showed and, and that uh, rapino and Carly Lloyd each got a couple goals. So I thought that was great. So, you know, a bronze is nothing to be embarrassed about, but the fact was that, um, you know, they're going to be a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of post-mortem and dissection after this one about the transition that needs to take place. And, and uh, I, you know, I think we all agree that maybe coach uh, Andonovsky rode the old horse veteran horses maybe one cycle too long. Too
0: long. But again, well, I mean look, we've talked about it before this, yeah. and this and we talk about it with Jay heaps uh a little later on when we when we talk to him. But uh but yeah they I, that was my they, they've stuck around too long. And and the problem is though there's not a lot of games to well, you know, Julie Fowdy talked about it and said, yes, perhaps he went with the tried and true veterans. He said, these are the ones that dominated in the World Cup. So why not stick with them? She said, because of COVID and a few other things. And look, by the way, I, I always love what Julie Fowdy has to say. She's she's right on point. Um, they they sort of rode the, the old players, but there weren't a way to bring in new players because there weren't a lot of games being played. Now, having said that, After she said that, conversely, the men didn't have the opportunity to really play either. Yet here they have this wellspring of great young players coming in. And um, I think this harkens back to the days when, and I said this last week, the U.S. national team players on the men's side were there for two, three cycles. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a it's a young person's game. And, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, it's an old team. It's a very
2: old team. And things change. The the one stat that I don't think is getting enough focus is um, they had ten goals disallowed for offsides, and people are like, "Yeah, Gro, what's the big deal?" Well, you know, maybe one or two of them were close via VAR, and I know Julie Foudy kind of fixated on one of them being a bad call, but 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 ten disallowed goals to me just just says a lack of discipline and cohesion, and almost like an effort by the people playing up front to cheat a little bit because maybe they're a step too slow. So, you know, they're trying to just their margin for error is so is just off. But again, I just think that's kind of a lack of discipline. And again, if it's one or two in a tournament, it's like whatever, but 10 goals disallowed in a tournament says something about the way they're playing. And again i'm not uh, i'm not here to dissect all of it right now but again i just thought that was a stat that uh, people aren't talking enough about because it just shows again uh, kind of a lack of discipline and cohesion in their transition guys
0: do you you think this was the last
2: game for a lot of these players
0: do you think there'll be wholesale changes i do
2: yeah Yeah, i mean i think carly lloyd will will retire and she's had an amazing career and she deserves all the accolades she gets. I think Rapino, um, Morgan, you know, you know Morgan. Um, again, they, they may they may try to go on, but again, this is where the coach has to kind of step in in U.S. Soccer and say, "Hey, we got to bring in Katarina Macario, who basically saw like three minutes in the entire tournament." Um, right. I want and to it, see some of the new players. This is what the part of the problem was. We've heard it classically that the players sort of ran the show
0: and you have the guaranteed contracts uh, no cut contracts uh, it makes it difficult for a coach to uh, who has less job security than the players do and you can't make those changes sometimes so i think there's going to be wholesale changes with the us women's national team um from the top down so yeah uh, and,
2: and and to be fair some of the the younger players did rose lavelle was just like absent she yeah. was she, she was had... really disappointing lindsay Horan was disappointing so i'm not going to pin this all on the veterans because I think a lot of the younger players that they were banking on just had bad tournaments.
0: Yeah. It was, it was odd. You could just see the, the, the sort of, I mean, they played, got outplayed badly by Sweden, were lethargic in the second game where they were playing for a tie. Well, they played uh, New New Zealand. Zealand. They They just beat up on them. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, the third game, they just were playing for a tie, which was really tough to watch. So, all right, so let's move on to some better stuff. Uh, the U S men's national team, seems to have uh, ridden out some really tough times since uh, they lost at to Trinidad Tobago and not getting in the World Cup uh, here they won had a won two tournaments this summer beating Mexico uh, so what what did you what were your thoughts on the on the on the games guys overall
1: uh, I, yeah I didn't see the the entire final um but I thought it was the most comfortable I'd seen the us look all tournament by far um which was interesting because it was the best team they played against. Uh, I think, You know, this is kind of the trouble with being a CONCACAF nation is that the U.S. are sort of expected to be this giant and really control the games against the smaller teams. And when they have to do that, they don't it doesn't always seem to work that well. And there were games earlier in the tournament where everyone was saying, you know, God, they're just playing so poorly. They're not connecting, et cetera, et cetera. But they really seemed to settle into this identity as more of a reactive team against Mexico um, and again, that, that's in no way a criticism. I mean, this is how Italy played for, uh, you know, ages. I mean, you could say England kind of played like this at the Euro. I mean, uh, I just think it's like a, a mentality that was tapped into that really brought out the best in this group of players um, and really made them fight and, you know, scrap for this thing. So I, I was really impressed. Yeah. You know, I, I I wasn't like Alexi Lalas. I wasn't in tears at the end, but um, I was, you know, I was quite moved. I mean, I, th-
2: I think it's a practical approach from burhalter because, you know, he is, he he's dealing with a team that doesn't have its four best, four or five best players. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's been given a squad squad that isn't just from a talent level, isn't as good. So I think he's, you know, it's about grit. And being competitive and all that, because the fact is that if you put them up against like a world class team, they're gonna be outskilled, out technique, all that stuff. So, anyway, mm-hmm. I think he did, did the right thing, which was just put the players on the on the pitch in, in any given game that had the best chance to compete. Mm-hmm. And I thought they did a great job competing. And I think mm-hmm. it will serve them well for World Cup qualifying because they'll play a lot of the same teams. So now we have a measuring stick. And then you insert the Dest's and the Polisics and the McKennys, and then you're looking at something. I'm still a little concerned, like, first things first, let's qualify for the World Cup. But once they do that, then this, then the next step is just a, a massive step, right? Then you're competing against the really good teams. Sure.
0: I'm just not sure how
2: they measure up yet. But I think he did so effectively, because, look, if Berhalter – if they lost a couple
0: of games, people be calling for his head uh, yeah. and everything else. But what he's trying to do is, you know, you've got the European-based players. The players are playing at, a, at an elite level. And then now you try to build the up-and-coming guys so you can, you know, get some depth on the bench. And, boy, he, you know, you, you're willing to lose some games when you have to do that. Uh, and it's not always a, a popular decision. But mm-hmm. he get the best of both worlds here because we saw a lot of great young players, a lot of guys who are on the cusp now that we didn't mm-hmm. even know about. You know, a couple of months ago, so I think it could not have been a more successful summer. Now, you know, people get these illusions of grandeur that we're going to win the World Cup. It's like relax, everybody, take it easy, because then you see a team, you know, they played Qatar and um, they're very good. The Asian champions, they were really good.
2: They just (laughs) ran out of gas. That was kind of their history throughout the tournament, is they were really Mm -hmm. good for like the first seventy minutes, and then the last twenty minutes they kind of faded. Hey, we talked to Jay Heaps about that as well. At that level, the
0: game is played at, you got to have that one more gear. And sometimes the older players can't can't quite get there, you know? Uh, and, and so um, it was nice. It was nice to see. And I got to apologize. I guess, you know, I was going off on cutter, not having a single player from cutter. I thought, but you were saying most of them were born there, right?
2: Yeah. Well, no, some of them were born in France and Portugal, but most of them were raised there. So it's not like they just showed up, you know, the last minute and got a visa and were able to play for the team or something they were, you know, cutters made up of a lot of people from France and Portugal and Africa and whatever. It's a melting pot, right? So, they were born elsewhere, but they were raised in Qatar. So in my mind, they're legitimate, you know, Qatarians. I don't know if the correct term is. Whatever. Gonna, I, whatever. I'm going to make I'd that up. That. Yeah, but, uh, but anyway, I you I, know, again, Flinney, I still don't know what the Burhalter system is, and I really don't care at this point because as long as they're getting the results, I could care less about the system. Just qualify. Look, That's it, all they need well, to worry about, qualify. Oh look, it's fluid. So
0: you, you see, you start one way, you make uh, substitutions, which I think he did quite well. His substitutions were impactful. He was, you know, making them in the 60s minutes, you know, as opposed to the 70s somethings which I think sometimes players don't have a chance to sort of affect the game. Uh, and he was making a couple subs at once. So there was like this real boost that would happen. And, you know, we know as players, like sometimes you you watch three new subs come on that are, are all skilled and fit and fresh. And you're like, ah, oh, damn it, Dan, you know. Because uh, you're in the 65th minute, it's like
2: shit. This is a this is going to be a tough slog. And I, um, I and wonder. I, I was just going to say, funny. I've got to say to the players' credit, it was like playing an away game in Las Vegas. It was 65,000 mm-hmm. people, and I think that's a bummer, 50, isn't I think, it? I think 55,000 of them had sombreros on. I mean, it was like it was like every crowd shot was a was a Mexican fans. I don't I know like how that a happens. Pocket of American fans in the corner, maybe ten thousand were, but yeah, it's tough. It's like a cauldron. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I don't know how that happens. Uh, and I wonder what the future holds for Tata Martino. I mean, I don't know. Uh, they're they're pretty, they, you know, not a lot of room
2: for error there. They're calling um, for his head, of course. You knew that was happening. It's been a
1: really rough summer for Mexico, right? Losing yeah. the, the Nations League. And then they sent some of their better players, better young players to the Olympics where they yeah. lost in the semifinal. Kind of took an older team to the Gold Cup, obviously lost that. So they, yeah, not their best. You know, hey uh
2: grill what were the ratings like for this uh this time through yeah so they did for the finals on fox and univision together they did 7.45 million viewers which was good it, w- it was it was i would call it very good it wasn't exceptional um nine o'clock on a sunday night um huh, how was my time but, oh, on the east coast might have been hard obviously that's six west coast time i'm not going to blame it on the time slot because it wasn't a terrible time slot but uh It might've also kind of fallen between the cracks too with the Olympics going on, to be honest with you. So uh, anyway, good, solid rating, no doubt. All right. And uh, all
0: right. So the finals for the women are
2: what? Tonight tonight. at 10 o'clock. Yeah. Tonight, Sweden, um, Sweden against Canada. And uh, I I like, I I just like Sweden because it's hard not to, I think Canada has been fantastic, but I like Sweden one nil tonight. I don't know about you guys.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I'm going with Sweden 2 0. So, uh, okay. Yeah, I think Canada has a tough time scoring a little bit, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, um, And then the men's finals of Brazil and Spain, which will be a nice game Saturday. Yeah, which
2: under normal circumstances would be a big deal just based on the countries themselves. But as we know from the Olympics tournament, especially I think in the men's side, you, you don't even, maybe if you know two or three players from each team it's like a lot. So it just doesn't, if it was Brazil, Spain in the world cup or any other tournament, it would be a massive deal. Yeah.
0: But I love watching those young players play from those yeah. countries, man. They uh, it's, it's amazing fearless. So, all right, right. let's take a break here, guys. Uh, when we come back we'll be talking to Jay heaps. He's a GM president down in Birmingham. Uh, what a storied career he's has is uh, he's, uh, he's bright. And man, this, this, this guy's, I can't say he's going places. What would you say guys? He's like, he's it, he's there. But uh, boy, so much more is going to come from this guy. I can just tell he's uh, he's really something. So, um, you know, Jay played at Duke, uh, standout player. Also played for Coach K as the uh, as in his words, he kind of rode the pine for Coach K and the basketball team as well, which was uh, pretty unique, especially back then. So stick around. You listen to Over Ball when we come back. Jay Heaps. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, it has been a while since we've had a tan- chance to talk to Jay. He uh, well, uh, he has had a storied career, first with Duke as a soccer player, even in, a, as in his words, sadder than Duke basketball bench, which is quite an honor in and of itself, uh, under the tutelage of Coach K. One of the top picks in MLS draft, MLS Rookie of the Year, MLS All-Star. First, he was in Miami, then traded to New England where he really made a name for himself. He played there for nine seasons, went to four MLS Cups, two U.S. Open Cups, which he won in 2007, retired in 2009, and then took a detour. I love this, Jay, uh, by (laughs) taking a job at Morgan Stanley for two years, going after some of that big Wall Street money. But then the man came to his senses, went back to following his passions, taking over as head coach of the New England Revolutions, uh, where he coached from 2011 to 2017. He took them to MLS Cup, also U.S. Open Cup. Uh, but wait, there's more. Yes, there's more. Uh, Jay is now the president and uh, GM of Birmingham Legion FC in the USL Championship, uh, and you've you've done uh, you've picked up right where you've left off with with all your other endeavors. Uh, the inaugural season was 2019. Uh, you had to build a whole front office, a technical staff. Uh, the more you learn, Jay, it seems like the more things you have to learn again. Uh, <laughs> but uh, welcome back to Over the Ball, uh, Jay Heaps. How are you, my friend? Good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me back. I was just about to say we're out of time now after that <laughs> resume, my God. Uh, but good stuff. So Jay, you, you have a really unique uh, view of this game in this country, uh, internationally, you know, domestically, uh, in college. So there's a ton of things we want to ask you. But first of all, uh, a lot of games, national team games this summer. Uh, what were your thoughts? First, let's say, talk about the U.S. men's national team. You've played in a Gold Cup yourself. How was that? Uh, how was that watching that?
3: Well, I loved it. I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun and and to see the group come together and and, and to be able to, you know, look, it, it, it's a group coming together. I I, being a part of it, you're, you guys, a lot of it were MLS guys, you're playing against each other a lot, but you never really get brought in. And so that group came together and I thought coach, uh, you know, uh, Greg did a great job of of playing his style, but then making some um, quick adjustments to the group that he had. And, it's for me, it's it's great to see guys like Matt Turner. Matt Turner was in New England. It's, he's a great story. i uh, I actually took him undrafted out of college. he He was like Bambi on ice when we first got him. He could make every save in the world, but his feet were just so bad. And the goalie coach up there, Remy Roy at the time he was my uh, he was an assistant, uh, He said, look, this guy's just got something. He's got something. So we kept them around. and even toward the end at the end of my in two thousand and seventeen, when I was uh, after I got fired, you could start to see. He was starting, we were gonna we were gonna try to start to play him toward the end of that year, and then 2018 was his, he started as a goalkeeper, and it's been uh, fun to watch. And so those are those are cool stories to see players like that taking their chance and 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 doing such a great job. But now now he's in contention to be the number one goalkeeper. Come you know come the this uh, the qualifying cycle.
0: Yeah, I was just mm-hmm. gonna ask you that because he seems like he's a great shot stopper, and he seemed to be confident and comfortable with the ball at his feet as well, which I think is my one concern about Zach. Zach Steffen is, it's a little tight, you know, Uh, Well, he's playing at man city, but it just doesn't seem like he's comfortable with his, with his feet at the, you know, with his foot at the ball. He takes risks. I I actually Mm -hmm. got
3: to meet Zach Steffen. actually came down here two about two weeks ago. Crazy enough. He's best friends with a guy, our center back, Alex Crognoli. And they, so he came and um, got to have a good conversation with him about uh, what he wants to do, his plans for the, for the, uh, you know, next season going into the Premier league. But yeah, I think he needs more games, Zach. And I think you're right. I think, he, I, actually, I think he's really he, his problem is I think he's too good with his feet where he takes chances and he risks where Matt Turner is just down and out and playing. And I'm not going to take any risks. Um, right. and I think sometimes that was what Matt Reese used to run into. Matt Reese was, you know, he could jump into a small side of game and play, uh, you know, professional level uh, midfield, right? Or forward. We yeah. play small side. Um, and I think Zach has that ability, but sometimes overconfidence in the wrong moments is is detrimental, especially at that highest level when people are going to be flying at you and, and picking away. And that, I think Matt showed, Matt Turner showed, hey, if it's on, I'll play it. If not, I'm going to get rid of it and put it, you know, 30 yards up the field if I have to.
0: Yeah, it's sort of interesting watching him play. He seems to play with some joy. I don't know if you saw the big smile and, and he uh, kind of hugged the Mexican player. It was like, this is... This is fun, ain't it, man? Like those eyes. I yeah. just thought it was an interesting way. And it also, this team reminded me of kind of the old teams that you played on. There was a lot of fight in these boys. Yep. Uh, they 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 refused to to sit down, and they kind of they had a confidence, a cocky young confidence. Which I think is an American sort of trait, and it was nice to see. Uh, you guys used to have it as well, so it's I, nice to see it back. I I couldn't I couldn't agree more with you on that. I watching Kellen Acosta
3: rub you know, bump into people. I, I love, I, I agree with you. I think you have to stand that way. I think, you know, it's, it, it, you play with passion, you play with, so. you know, I love the Matt Turner play with a smile on his face, but you also play with that that gritty style and you can do all of it, right? You can be hard. You can knock your opponent down. You can pick them back up. You don't have to give them an inch, but you can shake their hands after the game and walk away with the championship. I thought it was great. I really, you know, I was actually touched. I was, at first I started laughing. You saw Lexi Lalas crying mm-hmm. after the yeah. broadcast. And I, I was, I was like, what's he doing? And then I was like, then it kind of hit me because I had been in a, you know, an open cup final. excuse me, a gold cup final against Mexico in 2009 that didn't go our way. But knowing that, you know, that kind of, you know, and then I thought of it, wow, you know, he's, here's an alumni. I look at it like an alumni and he was just so touched by it. And and I think it's because of what you just said. It's it, it the team reminded me of that 94 team of the teams that were successful in 2002 and just, a group of guys coming together and, and drawing a line in the sand and saying, hey, we'll bend, but we're never going to break.
0: Yeah, and to be quite honest, I got emotional watching Alex because it, it there is so much more attached to it because we are underdogs as American soccer players. Here we are, we're American, so we go around the world and we're supposedly number one in everything. But in soccer, we, we haven't been classically, but we still get all that pressure. And then you come back home domestically and, and people will say things to you like, well, why can't the U.S. men win the World Cup like the women? And you're kind of like, wow, uh, apples and oranges yeah uh, big difference and so uh, yeah so it's a it's a good reason to get to get emotional uh guys
2: yeah um jay thanks for joining us um just uh i wanted to pivot a little bit to usl because that's your your current life work um and and would love to just hear a l- little bit of a like a primer for our listeners on usl just because uh I don't think you guys nearly get nearly enough uh, publicity as you should, but also if you could also get into the whole development league part of it, because uh, I need to be further educated because there's a lot of confusion out there between MLS Next and the USL Academy and kind of how how they differ and what their benefits are. Sure. So um
3: USL champion. Well, USL has really um, separated itself in the second division soccer. So that's the USL championship. And and the one thing about the USL um, in doing that, this was a, early on. They were it was a really kind of a strategic decision that was to to partner with MLS. And that was when um, the NASL was there. And it was who was Division One, who was Division Two, II, Division Three. So USL took a very smart stance. And this is what honestly this is when I was in MLS, but they created you know opportunities for MLS. Second teams to kind of have a place, and that's when you saw the New York Red Bulls too, Atlanta United two teams that had um, second teams. That 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 was a it's a really good place, and I think it was a smart move for USL to do that um, because it, there is you know you got it you have a hierarchy in, in Major League Soccer. You got um, you know this a lot of NFL owners, and they want to do it that way. And I think it, it, it's smart for USL to kind of find their own niche. Having having said that, the great thing about USL is it continues to grow, and it's not growing totally upward we're not taking over division one but we're taking over you know opportunities across the country so now there's 31 usl championship teams i believe there's 15 usl one and then there's usl two which is a which is more of um you know like a summer in between it was basically goes from may may 1 to july 15 and that's a really developmental league it's it's a semi-pro but you get your college college kids in there so there's really there's a really breadth of, of of basically covering a lot of the United States in these kind of pocket cities like Birmingham, cities like Tulsa that just don't have, you know, the the major city, you know, the major Major League Soccer city draw, and so what that does though is now you put put some professional teams there that then can have academies and then have development teams that really start to get down into the you know call it the the fingers of the, the country and and so that's what really intrigued me. Um, about about the development piece of it so you got a professional league but now we're in Birmingham and so now we're able to come into this town and I can kind of talk through our lens and they've got a really good you know um, youth development league set up or youth development clubs but they're always fighting against each other and there's you know mm. this team wants this player and it's all about winning and losing on the weekend where we come in and say hey look let's create a model that, that kind of is more of a pyramid model that allows us we're not fighting for these kids let's put them all in one team together and then when they play for us great. And this is at the, the academy level. Great. But if they don't play for us and they go back to their club teams on the weekend. So we kind of created a pool. It's oh, almost nice. like a national team pool, but it's a, it's really localized. And that was a thought process that I really liked and enjoyed having with the USL because when major league soccer came in and said, Hey, we're doing academies mm-hmm. and was this back then it was us soccer uh, DA. They just said, Hey, you're with us or you're not with us. And they just came in and just kind of bulldozed. And I saw that up in new England. I mean, the, I played for the bolts and, MLS comes in and, uh, uh, New England comes in and says, "Hey, we're starting an Academy. And it was really pushed a lot of teams around and it became fighting for players where our whole goal was just to make it just, you know, more, more inclusive. Say, Hey, we're not trying to box anyone out. We're just trying to create a, a situation where the best players want to play, find an opportunity. And that was what I was really excited about with, with USL doing that. So, um, this was this was you know a couple years in the making and so i've i've this is the first year we've done it and it's gone great and we have a team that's in it's vestavia hills hoover vestavia hills which is in mls next and we have a team in in birmingham united that's in boost uh, which is an ecnl so you got two competing leagues they play you know their games but when we play on the weekends and we have you know we're playing a usl academy level team which is a little bit better than than those leagues that sometimes we bring them in now that it's been exciting to see the players develop, but it's also been great not to cause, you know, fighting over players and too much pressure on. Hey, you got to choose one team over another. We've right. kind of found that 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 medium ground that I think is helpful.
0: Nice hybrid mm-hmm. model, it seems like. Hybrid you know, model. It, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, Sam.
1: Yeah, Jay, um, it's been you know hard not to notice the influx of and kind of importance of foreign players in the college game recently, especially with Marshall winning the championship this year. Um, and I'm just curious, as the USL continues to grow, are you guys also seeing an influx of these foreign players coming in? And what what is that? How has that kind of worked with development?
3: So we have and we have seven international spots. So we've seen mm-hmm. that. And I think there's been a real trend to have these be younger international players, mm-hmm. Um I still think though because MLS and this is this is my kind of thought process and something we've seen because MLS is going so heavy on um, high expensive uh, international players in in key positions, a lot of those young uh, you know American players are dropping out or kids that were otherwise in the, in the academy or first 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 contract players coming out of college we're, we're seeing them drop to USL. So we mm-hmm. have a player that his name is Johnny Dean he's our right back. Mm-hmm. for me, he's one of the best players that we've seen, you know, that we, that we have in our team, but in the league and he, in three or four years ago, he would have been MLS starter. No question in my mind. He would have been, he would start for me seven, you know, seven years ago when I was coaching in New England, no, no question. But now you're starting to see some, you know, you might, you might see New England go after a left back. That's or right back. That's five or six or $800,000 now. So you're getting a little bit higher level of player, but that American player isn't making the roster or isn't playing. I, and you're seeing USL get those players. So that's something that's been exciting for me, seeing those, those where we think we're going to develop a lot of these players. And in two, three, four years, once they get those games underneath their belt, there's no question in mind, Johnny Dean, now that he's playing, could play in MLS. We have Jaden Cervania, who's Brandon Cervania's little brother, who's been playing a ton for us. He's 19 years old, hasn't been able to break into an MLS team because you know he plays left wing, right wing, and it's just where they're spending a lot of money from, you know, on an international um, budget standpoint. And we have a spot for him and he plays quite a bit. And I think those players will refine their game and then be the next level up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where our folks, so we've been focusing not so much on the international older players. We look for the younger players to kind of follow through with that, but I have been seeing, and we've been open to bringing a lot, a lot of the young American players that just aren't breaking in.
0: Mm-hmm. This is great. You know, the development piece of this, especially as Americans and as we feel like all like what you and I went through and grail all of us developing as players in this country. It was tough. And you think about how many young good players with so much potential just kind of fall by the wayside because there was nowhere for them to go. So it's always nice to hear a, a Matt Turner story or something where guys actually get some, they get their ups and they they get a chance to get in. So development's a big piece of that. So let's talk about uh, the national team again and and um, Burhalter. It seems like he did a really good job developing a lot of new young players, some of which I I don't know who they were. I had to do some little bit of due diligence, like where's this kid from, Uh, which is exciting. I think this is, you know, back in your day, you know, Harksy and Tab and all those guys, they'd stay for two, three cycles uh, before guys would get pushed out. Now, conversely, the women seem to be where we used to be as a men's national team with guys just sitting there, what do you think about the pressure that a young player creates on the older players to just like, because that national team games, those games, they're at a higher level, aren't they? You, you, yeah. you just kick it up a notch. What are your thoughts on that?
3: That is the, that is the hardest as a coach. That's the balance you're always striking. You go mm-hmm. with the proven veteran that you know is probably not a step slow because it's hard to say they're steps. step slow. It's maybe a half step slow compared to that younger player coming up, but the experience and the knowledge gained in, is that going to be that, that difference maker just because of, you know, reading the game and it maybe doesn't come down to being a step slow or half step slow. So I've, I, I, I've always struggled with that. And as a head coach of major league soccer, I mean we had Jermaine Jones on our field and he was still one of the best players and he was still getting called in the national team. And it was always, you know, people would say, Hey, do you think he should be brought in? I'm like, I, I think so. Because he has all that and he's so close. And, and, and at the time, you know, um, Jurgen Klinsman just loved them, but it, did he go one or two, or four games too many that didn't allow Weston McKinney come up or certain players get those right. extra games. So there's a really fine line. And, and so I think there is, I mean, as a coach, you have to find that balance. And, and I, I think that um, I do think that that was what caught set us back a little bit. Uh, not qualifying for that world cup was probably keeping Jurgen on a, you know, one cycle too long into that other right. one. So those other players didn't get in and coaches know once they've won with certain players, there's a tendency is, Hey, I, I know I trust that player. Um, but I think Greg has come in and reset that. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many players he's called in in the, in the, in, you know, I think yeah. about I mean, him as a ton of players that he's brought in. Um, but that's great. I think that those players are starting to really take over, um, which is huge. And you're going to see that, but that, that is the hardest thing as a coach is knowing, do we go from, you know, some, something I can trust and, and, and value, or is this up and coming player going to, you know, exceed them with potential and, 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 uh, beat them down, you know, beat, take us to that next level. And, i think the women's team ran into that i think you know you're seeing but then, then again i you know i was up last night i had my son is 16 and he had some friends over and they were we had them they stayed up and watched some of the game i fell asleep after about 15 minutes we were, it's <laughs> out of 3 a.m here but they all stayed up and watched but you saw carly lloyd and and um you know
0: just a and, Impino, and just i mean
3: they had a brace I mean, and they're those so they have it right and it's just a matter of right. blending it and finding it are you relying too much on it and Um, not, I've never, I know, I don't, I'm not in that locker room. So I don't know, but I tell you, those girls are, uh, those women, I say girls, those women are amazing. And it's hard to say, Hey, who are these young players coming up? And that balance is always going to be the hardest thing that you, uh, that you have as a coach.
0: Right. I remember, you know, and talking to Jeff Vegas and being a friend of Jeff. you know, he was a warrior. He was in there and he just said, man, he was in, you know, qualifying. And then he just, he lost a step you know, he lost a step and he knew it. And yet here you had this proven warrior and it's a tough decision for the coach because a player with that kind of heart and soul is not going to say, yeah, sit me, you know, yep. you're going to give it a shot. So it's, it's tough. But then again, it's, it's part of the the components that go
2: into a player with how you evaluate them. You know, so yep. Grail. Yeah. Jay, you have such a unique perspective because of all the years you, you spent uh, playing in MLS and then being in coaching there. And then obviously in, uh, USL. Now, I'm just curious. You know, what are some of the things you learned from your MLS experience that you could apply to your your newer situation, and then vice versa? What could MLS learn from USL in terms of maybe doing things better or tapping into something that they haven't yet? Well, that's that's a
3: that's a great question, and um, I will say that one of the things I learned, and this is more not so much between MLS and um, in uh, USL one of the first things I learned though that I think has has, has been very beneficial as being being a head coach and then now being a general manager and understanding what's going on in the locker room and um and having a you know re- being able to talk to the head coach and he, I brought down tommy stone who was who was actually my assistant in New England and he's he was a head coach in um, DC United and he was a technical director in Vancouver when they were building out there so he's also been on both sides of it um, but I brought him down, and and, and right away, you know, I, I trust him with the entire locker room. And and so, but but knowing how to make moves based upon, and you know, sometimes a coach can be emotional and and, and say, oh, I, I don't want this player in the locker room anymore because of this reason or that reason, or sure. we need more of this, we more of that. So he, I think being in that locker room, I understand the call it the breath of, hey, okay, this is this is this, we need to move this player on, or we need to sell this player, or we need to sign a player. Um, and so I, I think that has been a really it's been very, you know, being on both sides of that has been a very good learning experience. Um, it's something I think is, is is helping us as we go because I'm not, you know, we made two moves last year that that were getting rid of a player, right? And to be honest with you, if it was just my GM hat, it probably wasn't the best decision, but I knew from a head coach and how much he was spending on this player, the distraction of the player in the locker room, what this player was doing probably behind the scenes and kind of, you know, bringing one or two players down with him we decided to move on from them and it was the best thing we ever did. And we were, it was, you know, it's not, it's, it's not always, it's you, you move, you know, subtraction, you know, it was addition by subtraction and we, we became better because we were able to move on from this player. But if I had just been a GM and GMs I've had in the past, I think there's, a Hey, the GM move is to hold on to this player. We're paying a salary. Let's keep it going. Instead. We traded the, or we, we loaned the player out, continued to pay his salary, but he was gone. He was out of sight, out of mind. And our group truly, you know, stepped up and we were better for it. Um, so that was something, you know, as a coach and and as a GM, you kind of learn that balance. The one thing I will say about MLS and USL is MLS is what I would, I I look there and I've sat in that MLS seat and I've looked down at USL and, um, and I say, look down at, look, looked across, look, what kind of players can we sign? And I'm trying to find how we can show the talent we have. And, and that I think the the talent's really good in the USL. And I think there's players that if I'm an MLS, I want to grab these players and bring them up but I think there's a little bit of a hesitancy from the MLS because they're saying, okay, this player's, maybe he's been in the, you know, we got a player, Cavita uh, Faneuil Cavita, who is in the homegrown system for Salt Lake. And then he was, you know, didn't sign a first team contract there. And, you know, does that history not allow, you know, New England to sign him because uh, maybe he's, you know, he's not with a team because he's not good enough. But the reality is, I think these players are good enough. They're just not getting enough looks with the MLS group now. And so that would, that'd be my one thing. I talked to MLS guys all the time. I'm saying, you should be watching these guys. And so we've sent three or four guys up. Um, we have brought guys down on loan from MLS, but I think that, you know, the, as that gap gets closer as MLS, as MLS, you know, continues to rise. I see USL rising. I still think there's two or three players per team that have the ability to go up. And I think MLS should, should continue to watch that.
2: Real. Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick follow-up on that, uh, Jay, that, that kind of coach GM dynamic in Atlanta of uh, MLS, which was kind of seen as I think the poster child of expansion teams and enjoyed incredible success early. They've gone through this unbelievable upheaval over the last few years, um, specifically with what you're talking about coaching changes. And I'm just curious if you have any insights into what might be going on there. Cause that just seems like a very uh, unsteady situation at the moment.
3: Yeah. And you're in it. And, and I, I won't assume that I know more than I do, but I, I just from, from an outside, I think you're right. I think what you're seeing is, is, is that that's something we, when we came down and um and I met with ownership here in new in, in, um, in Birmingham was to have, we want to have a culture of the club and you want to have that culture and that kind of the philosophy as a club. You want your head coaches to come in and be a part of that. You don't want always to come in and change and flip things around and, and um and and so they're supposed to be a part of it but you don't want them you know going either which way and having a lot of a lot of cultural changes from just a head coach because they may move on they may you know they may you know you may have to fire them so there's a lot of things you have to kind of think through I I think back and I hope Atlanta doesn't go down this road but to remember in Toronto the reason why they struggled so much early in their expansion years is that they would hire a coach and be like all right you, you fix everything for us you fix the academy you you know, you create what kind of players we want. Go, what kind of players do you want to sign? What happens is you start to get really swung by coaches that are just, you know, they're trying to win now, and that's important. We also have to think about winning in the big picture, and that's why the club mm-hmm. philosophy has to be <clears throat> powerful and be, you know, something that that coach can buy into without taking over full control, and I think that's the balance that's happening in Atlanta because Tata came in, and he, he, he was that. I mean, he, he brought players in, but he, they were signing a lot of players, so he had a lot of say in that get control of of what he wanted to do but I think it was in a really good balance of what the first team was doing or what the the club was doing right um so that was important and I think the new coach coming in you know whether they expect more control or they don't expect control I think that's what you're seeing is a little bit of that that power shakeup, which is sad to see um because look we played land united every preseason they are a top level organization I I I know Carlos Mm -hmm. really well um I know Darren pretty well and um, they always, whenever we play them in preseason, they come down, they bring their, their front office down and we get to, to, you know, watch the game together. But um, so I think they'll get it right. I just think they just got to find the right coach for the club, not so much the right coach for right now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's even that could say to the national team as well, where Burhalter comes in, tries to establish a system but there's pressure to win right away as well as you're checking out new players, as you're building a roster. So uh, a lot, a lot there. I think, you know, you're such a, a an interesting view on everything. Um, do you feel that you get a lot of due from the players just because you were a player at such a high level? Um, and uh, even, even as a GM, you know, uh, cause it's like when a guy played at a level, you're like, the, the boys will listen sometimes.
3: I, I think that matters. I think, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think that matters. I don't think it's the ultimate respect. I think they, they, they would, they, they really like, you know, the one thing I've learned is I think they'll respect you if you walk in the room and you play for the national team and you've, and, you know, you've, you've been to championship games, but then you got to treat them, you know, you know, you, you know, as uh, with respect. And, and, and that's one right. thing I've, I've learned. I've been, I won't, that is another thing I've learned is that, you know, as a coach, you can go in, you can have a little bit more of a, hey, you know, you can play coach the you can Say, hey, you play, yeah, yeah and you weren't as, and talk about the performance. Where now as a GM, I, I really have to concentrate on not I have to take my coach's hat off and go into the locker room after a game and just say good job, whether we won or lost. And and really just kind of give, you know, hey, pop, more of a, a club feedback. Hey, you know, your parents come to town, I'd love to get them tickets, whatever it is, it's more about helping the players kind of process than it is, hey, why the hell were you three feet off, you know, mm-hmm. of, you're <laughs> three feet behind the right. there? What the hell are you doing? Right. It's it's a lot more about um kind of the club presentation and 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 I think that you know, you do see some GMs that were players that sometimes don't turn that off and we'll walk right. in the locker room and lay into people. And, um, that was a philosophy that when we, when, when I took over with Tommy and Tommy came down, and was very, very adamant that that's the case. Like if I want to be the coach and coach, but if I want to be the GM, be the GM president and let's, let's have a bigger picture, um, for the club. And I think that has been some great, great advice that he gave me and something that we've stuck to here as a club.
0: So your administrative sort of you know, background because all of us, even if as players, you sort of you're a good player, then you become the captain of the team and you suddenly become management, so so to speak. You're talking to the coach, and then the players are nobody's ever happy with the coach, and you it's yeah. sort of that middle thing. You played for Coach K, you must have learned a lot from him. Uh how about the two years uh working for Morgan Stanley and any infrastructure, any how can you apply any of that to what you've learned?
3: Well, that was where I got really. I I worked at Morgan Stanley. I worked in the Boston office the whole time I was there. I was. It, I mean, I actually really enjoyed it because it was, it was something new. I was um, meeting a lot of people that were um, that I just you know that were, were successful businessmen, and, and then on top of that, men and women actually. That one of the one of my mentors in the in in Morgan Stanley was this super successful woman, and she just she had a mindset of how to build a team. Um, you know, within Morgan Stanley, and, and so wow. she had she was awesome because she was, she was, very smart, but she knew what was going on. But she really knew how to put people in the right positions within a team. You know, we call it a, we call the teams at Morgan Stanley, um, and so I thought that was neat. And I always thought, well, wow, I want to learn on this, but but I spent a lot of that time. Going over the MLS cap structure at the time. So I, when I I just for whatever reason I was doing the TV <laughs> for New England and I just I just got really into. It. So I would call the MLS office and be like, hey, give me the new rules. I want to know what's going on. And so there was, I just I just got really into it. Now, by the way, these rules change every six yeah. months, I feel like, in MLS. Um, but that's what I really enjoyed doing. So I thought maybe I'd go into being kind of a a GM role after being at Morgan Stanley, and um out of nowhere you know, cause I thought Steve Nickel would have maintained been the coach forever. Cause he was my coach forever. And I was kind of yeah. hoping to get, um, you know, at one point talked about maybe being his assistant, but that didn't work out. And then, um, you know, potentially looking for opportunities in as a general manager in MLS when Mike Burns called me and said, Hey, look, would you, would you consider interviewing for the head coaching job? And, and that came from Mr. Kraft and John and Jonathan Kraft. And so, um, I went into that that meeting and I and I had a really good knowledge of the league at the time because I wasn't playing. I spent a lot of time on the cap in my day job, so to speak. But then on, <laughs> sure. on top of that, I was you know doing the TV, so I was flying and seeing these teams play every week. So I had a really good understanding of the league at the time, and so I think it was a it was a good it was a great fit a great opportunity and um, and I loved it. I mean, I really loved coaching. Uh, it was the most stressful time of my career because I wanted to win so badly for the crafts I wanted to get them that championship right. um and we went to the 2014 MLS Cup on a on a pretty tight budget um you know we really brought Jermaine Jones at the end but at the time you know teams could survive you know or you could you could be successful if you built on the draft if you built on one or two homegrown players if you didn't overspend in certain areas and we did that really well and um competed but since then 2000 since I'd say 2017 18 19 you're just seeing the league the amount of money being spent on players is, is, it's great to see, but it's, it's really taken a level from where it was in the 18 and 19 to a, to another level.
0: My whole thing with the revolution was I was always, I would call you guys. You've been on the show before. Mike's been on the show before you've been very uh, gracious with your time. Uh, the one question that never, nobody wanted to answer was how about a stadium in uh, a soccer specific stadium. And it seemed like the crafts were committed to it and trying to get it, but it just never happened. And um, you know, that's a, that's a tough stadium to play in. It really was. So, and, and that's a great town. I mean, we'd always dreamed of something in Brookline or or yeah. Cambridge or something, but uh, I guess that I, remains to be seen.
3: It does. And I, and I, a lot of people think it's, you know, the crafts are being cynical about it and they're not really trying. I'll tell you, I've been in those meetings. I've, I've sat there with the Goldman Sachs bankers as the head coach. And we're going over this, what the deal looks like and the crafts put it all in. And then, you know, some, some little thing in Boston, Boston politics are not easy to navigate. So you think you, you think you're in and then something changes. I mean, the, the one site that I thought was the UMass Boston site was just, I mean, it came Perfect. down to a building. It came down to a building that they that was owned by someone that they just couldn't make happen, move. And I don't care. You know, it just it didn't make any. It, the, the building didn't want to move. I think it ended mm-hmm. up being like a, it was like a teacher's union building. That the teacher's union. Not, yeah, yeah. It, it had nothing to do with, you know overpaying or underpaying you just they were they weren't going to move whether you had a hundred million dollars or ten dollars right they just oh. that was what was going to happen just was not going to move it. and i think that so I, I i do feel for the crafts um and I, and I give bruce arena a lot of credit because he's gone in there and and, and because he has that kind of bill belichick kind of history of winning he's yeah. been able to walk in and say look and he's gotten the crafts to spend a lot of money on player acquisitions i think now the crafts are saying wow there is there's value in being spending some money on good players because there's our potential to sell players or, you know, they can get a lot of their money back on some of the players they have that could boost. Cause I know uh, my good friend, Remy Roy tracked him. He's the, he's the um, he's the one who I told you about with, that helped sign Matt Turner, but he's now a part of the um, scouting department and he found him and I've talked to him recently. There's, there's offers for him all over the place in the, in the world. And so hopefully awesome. you see, you know, player gets sold and now you, you see the value in that. Um, but so that's been great, and I and I actually love watching the revolution uh, playing out because I see, you know, some of my former players out there playing well. Teal Bunbury, you know, Scott Caldwell is still on the squad. You got Matt Turner, a- Andrew Farrell, who was one of my favorite players I ever coached. Is you know captain of the team a lot of times, so it's fun to watch. But it's it's great to see the crafts getting bought into that, and 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 to their credit, they've they they really did want to build a stadium. I still I still think they really do want to build a stadium. It's just a matter of finding that.
0: Kind of the right spot yeah, to a, lot of, a lot of a lot of uh, hoops to jump through. Uh, we got to kind of wrap it up here. But Sam, you have another question? Uh,
1: yeah, j- just one more question, Jay. We had a a the founder of uh, a NISA team on recently, the National Independent Soccer Association, um, who kind of explained that whole setup and pyramid and everything. And uh, I'm curious where you see that sort of fitting in the overall landscape.
3: So I will I'm there's actually one here in Birmingham, uh, the Birmingham um, football club or Birmingham FC. So I am, I don't know enough about it uh, other than I know that it's um, it's, it's that grassroots soccer. And I think that that's really important to our, to our growth of the game. And so I don't know exactly what their end game is. I don't, I would act like I wish I knew more, but I know from seeing it here in Birmingham, they're taking a lot of players that are either, you know, maybe weren't drafted anywhere, or maybe weren't able to play full professional yet, but still have a love for the game that want to keep playing. And so, they've taken on some players that, that we know that tried out for our team when we had an open tryout and we're taking a lot of um, a few players here from Birmingham Southern. Um, and so I think it's great. Cause it's giving them an opportunity to keep playing. Um, I think it's great. Cause if hopefully, you know, one or two or three of those kids catch on somewhere and maybe there's an opportunity for them at the next level. Um, but I don't know what their end game is. I don't know if it's to go h- how many teams they want to be. Cause I know it's, I think it's over 70 teams now. Is that right? I think that the league is, is growing maybe a hundred teams. I can't remember if it was a hundred teams. Um, but it would it'd be interesting to see how uh, they they kind of navigate where MLS 2 is coming in, that league. you got USL in that league. So it's just a matter of where they're going to go. And I know USL is spending a ton of time right now. I think, you know, Gray and I talked about it. it um, the USL is trying to differentiate itself a little bit from MLS, and there's talk about promotion relegation. There's talk about switching the calendar. Um, and so those things are starting to kind of happen now. Within the USL ecosystem. And I think um, that could be a way to differentiate. And then I'd be really to see where NISA kind of comes out with that. Do they want to be a part of this opportunity to promote themselves up if, if that becomes the model that USL goes down?
0: Well, you know, at the end of the day, Jay, this is all great stuff because it's guys and when they get in the foot on the ball and uh, a lot more opportunities exist. and as we move towards basically winning a world cup, which is one of the reasons Lexi got so emotional. So it is happening. It's changing. Uh, and you are a big part of that, an amazing uh, set of experiences uh, that you've had that you are bringing to the game. I'm so glad you didn't go to wall street and you came back <laughs> to, to the soccer route <laughs> because we're, we're a better, uh, we're better off for it. Uh, Jay heaps. Uh, thank you so much. And best of luck with your, uh, with your future endeavor and many more. I know uh, that you will have my friend thank you guys i appreciate it anytime hey remember to tweet us at over the ball like us on facebook and instagram and write a review in fact make us one of your favorites
2: it makes a big difference
0: all right Jay heaps how impressive is that dude guys my god
2: that is a gaudy resume we love it as as members of the soccer community exactly all that knowledge and experience and
0: uh you know he's obviously got a financial mind as well with his with his sort of uh, Morgan Stanley background, how he applied it, he was always looking at the, uh, you know, he was still traveling to the games doing TV, but was also looking at the salary caps and all that stuff. So really,
2: really interesting
0: stuff. So,
2: and we love the fact that he played the game. Of course, we're biased, but that for us, that carries a lot of weight, right? Having people in like a GM position who, who played the game at a high level.
0: But well, yeah, and he talked about that a little yeah. bit
2: about how you got to wear your GM hat,
0: though. But you do have that experience because look, it could be a tough time as a coach oh, to be coaching when you got Jay Heaps in the front office. So you could say that you could see that Jay was sort of saying, "I take a hands-off approach to the coaching. He coaches yeah. the team." And and, uh,
2: and you could totally see the other type of GM who came in with like a ball and started trying to do instruction. For right. players, right? As the is the coaches in the corner going get the hell out of here, please? I don't. Yeah, I don't think instruction is at that level, but it, yeah. uh, of
0: the game. But it's a sort of technique, you know, tactics basically. No, but like so. ex,
2: you know, GMs who played, who just were never able to extricate themselves from their right. playing days, and just you know would come in there and start saying, you know, you had a guy square there back in the sixty-fifth minute. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, they they say you know as a as a, well the Greeks used to say from you know, going from warrior mentality to philosopher. And it's sort of, that's what you have to do. You have to kind of go into that, you know, I'm in the front office now and I'm making these other decisions and you try to create an environment where a coach could feel comfortable bringing in his players in Mm -hmm. consultation. It seems like he's doing that quite well. So yeah. Great. Uh, Great. Thanks to Jay Heath for, uh, for joining us. Now, Sam, what do you got for us this week?
1: Uh, Yeah. First, I I do have a quiz question, but first off, uh, in the wake of the gold cup, I just wanted to get your guys' take on, um, you know, the qualifying coming up for CONCACAF. And most people seem in agreement in the media that the U S Mexico and Canada are the favorites for the top three spots mm-hmm. uh, with El Salvador emerging as sort of a, a trendy pick for the fourth spot, which obviously has to play. Then the play in uh, qualification, right. but uh, do you, do you guys agree with this or do you feel people are reading maybe a little too much into this
2: tournament? I agree. I would agree with that. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's nobody, it's not go, no great shakes there. Um, and Hugo Perez is doing a great job with El Salvador. So they seem to be kind of the darling there's always kind of a, like a darling, I feel like, in each one of these cycles we go through for qualifying, like the emerging team that uh, kind of bubbles up. Like it was Costa Rica one year and Whatever, but they did uh, quite no. well
0: in the cup. They did quite well in
2: the no, cup. No, they had their day. They had their like four to five year period where it was the Ticos, right? Isn't that who goes the Ticos with, and the Joel Ticos, Campbell and they, they were, yeah, they were good, they were well. and mm-hmm. they've kind of now fallen by the wayside. But yeah, uh, but I think
0: that's not much of a stretch, yeah. Sam. But we'll see. But you know, and now we got to hope. And I don't think it'll happen. But the U.S. team to get cocky because the fans are getting like, oh, you know, uh, you know, getting g- visions of grandeur, basically because that is such a competitive team right now yeah. internally as well as externally, that that I think we're in pretty good shape. Let's see what happens. Yeah,
2: and by the way, you know, Canada's emergence on both the men's and the women's side is great, especially on the men's side as the 2026 World Cup approaches. Having, you know, a a strong U.S., Canada, and Mexico team for that shared World Cup will be fantastic. And that Mm -hmm. just... Those competitions now the Canada's back because
0: they're they're firmly back now. Yeah. Canada, I think that this is great for the game itself because definitely we, you know we all get fired up for the Mexico rivalry, but now we're getting fired up for the Canada rivalry. So yeah. uh, so I love it. All right, what do you got? So Sam? okay,
1: so the quiz question is: I was looking at the actual odds for qualification. They're not posted yet for the Concacaf uh, qualifying round. However, I sort of found a way to get this by looking at just the odds to win the World Cup. And out of our region, Mexico is the highest at 50 to one followed by the US at 65 to one. Who do you guys think is the third favorite to win the World Cup out of the CONCACAF region?
2: I'm gonna go with um, Canada
0: trick question grill i think after he kind of brought us down that road i think
2: uh, he's always uh, doing that isn't he nice terrible. very sinister man Sam. el salvador
1: <laughs> okay it's actually costa rica
2: oh okay Who it's most people coast.
1: agreed had kind of a disastrous tournament uh in yeah. the gold cup yes. Uh they're <laughs> at 800 to one so there's quite a drop off oh my god but uh panama Canada and Honduras are all at 1500 to ah, one. I'm putting, a, I'm putting
2: 100 bucks on Canada yeah. the
1: minute we get off this podcast. <laughs> exactly man so the bookies are not convinced by the gold cup they're not reading into it as much as the rest of us perhaps sam as you pointed
2: out the bookies also had some interesting things going on with the women you know the olympic tournament right or the underdogs versus favorites and you know yeah well
1: it it often does not align with uh public opinion it does say that
2: no it does not is that it? That's all I got. Yeah.
1: That's a
0: short quiz. Sam, I was ready wow. to get my number Shit. two pencil out.
2: Flitty. <laughs> Flitty was ready to, to be, to, to put out a one for 10 there in the quiz as usual, mm. by the way, I'm right with you too. <laughs> all right. So, well, all right. Some good stuff there, guys. Like to thank our, our guest,
0: Jay heaps. guy. we got to have him back on for a while. I think I ran into him in Nantucket just before the comedy festival. So it was great to see him. He was eating dinner with his dad. Uh, who uh, who looks just like him? Yeah. So uh, some good genes there. I, I
2: lo- you know, I like the idea of promotion and relegation. I just I don't think it can ever work in MLS as you keep trying to add teams because no new owner would ever abide by the idea of relegation. Well,
0: I think the one thing we can all agree on is yeah. the the distance we've traveled in this game and how different it is, and how many great positive things have happened. There's like you know, talking to Jay, more places for players to play. Uh, so who knows what the future holds, but the game looks pretty healthy uh, in this country right now. And and yeah. we are, we're moving up, not as quickly as we'd want to, obviously, but uh, but we're moving up. All right, I'd like to thank Jay Heaps from uh, Birmingham FC and then uh, my, uh, my co-hosts here, Grail Hallett and Sam Griswold. We'll talk to you next time, everybody, on OTB.